Begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we are so grateful to you that you have given us your inspired word. We are grateful for all of it, even those passages that are sometimes difficult to understand, that are sometimes challenging. We thank you that you have revealed this knowledge to us. We ask for your blessing upon it today to help us understand it more, for, more perfectly. We ask these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, we need a little more volume, I guess. Okay. Go ahead, here. Last time I finished up with the conditions that will prevail during the Millennial Kingdom, and I started describing the Millennial Temple. I told you about the Temple. I told you that uh, other prophets besides Ezekiel wrote about it. They wrote about a future millennial temple. But Ezekiel gives us in chapters 40 through 48 the most detailed comprehensive view of this millennial kingdom and the millennial temple and, and its worship. And I showed you how the, the only reasonable explanation is that this millennial temple is a future temple. It's not the first temple. It's not the second temple. It's certainly not the temple that will be occupied by the Antichrist. It is a future temple after the return of Jesus Christ to rule and reign upon this earth. I showed you some illustrations from pictures, from models, from diagrams of the temple. There was even one full color one. And I pointed out that a lot of diagrams of the Millennial Temple forget to include this uh, river that, that flows from underneath the temple. It flows out to the east. And I uh, showed you this slide to give you a, a size comparison. So you could see down here in the lower right-hand corner that the size of the temple complex compared to a, a football field. Now, for some reason, I don't know why this is, but for some reason, many of the diagrams that you will see of the Millennial Temple, for some reason, they have the, the entrance to the temple at the bottom of the diagram. Well, that's, that's helpful but to see the diagram, but it's not really the way that the temple is oriented. The, the Millennial Temple, like the first and second temples, will have the entrance to the temple facing east. And then I showed you that there will be a large area, a large compound, a large flat area surrounding the temple that's approximately a, a mile by a mile to square. I gave you the dimensions of the temple building itself. And there's a picture from a model of, of the temple complex. Now, I didn't get to last time the things that will not be in the Millennial Temple. The things that will not be in the Millennial Temple. This is important because it, it shows that this temple that, we're, that Ezekiel is describing is not the first temple, it's not the second temple, because it's very different. This is the first of those differences. The wall of partition was an important feature of Herod's temple, the expansion of the, of the second temple that is not found at the Millennial Temple. 
The wall of partition kept Gentiles in the outer court and prevented them from gaining access to the inner court of the temple. Why is there no wall of partition in the Messiah's temple? Paul tells us that Jesus, through his sacrificial death, made Jewish and Gentile believers into one body and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. So there's no dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles in the Millennial Temple. Likewise, there is no separate court of the women in the Millennial Temple. There was a separate court for the women in the Second Temple, in Herod's Temple, the the temple that Jesus came to. The explanation is found in Galatians 3.27-28, where Paul writes, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So that's why there's no separate court for the women in the Millennial Temple. The altar of the Millennial Temple will be different from that of previous temples. It will be approached from the east rather than the south, and it will be approached with a stairway rather than a ramp. Now, this is not just a minor detail. In both the first and second temples, the altar was approached from the south by a ramp. In the Millennium Temple, it will be approached by stairs from the east. This is just one of the reasons why this cannot be one of the previous temples. Because you could not, I repeat, you could not perform the Torah sacrifices in the old Levitical system in this new temple. Because in in the previous temples, this altar would not be legal. It would not be legal under the Torah system. In Exodus, God specifically forbid stair steps leading up to the altar. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. See, this is, this is an example of how God in his mercy deals with his people according to their circumstances. You see, when... When Israel came into the promised land, they were surrounded by pagan nations. And pagan priests would go up to their altars on steps. And the reason they did it on steps was to flaunt their nakedness. So God did not want to have that in his temple. And also, he had had the priest approach it from the south because pagan priests approached their altars from the east. Because the east was special to the pagans. It was the, the direction of the sunrise. But in the millennium, there won't be any competing pagan religions. So God does have, in the millennial temple, approaching his altar, he has steps. And he has, has the priest approach from the east. Because, you see, the millennial temple will, will be the throne of God. Jesus Christ will be seated on his throne in the temple. 
So when the priest approaches from the east, he will be facing west towards the throne of God. There's a, a diagram of, of the temple. The base of the temple is about 31 and a half feet long by 31 and a half feet wide. And it's about 19, and a half, 19 feet, just over 19 feet, about 19 feet, 3 inches high. Now, so, so that's the temple. That's, and that, and there, so you see there's a significant difference between the altar at this millennial temple and the altar in the, in the previous temples. Perhaps the most surprising thing about the Millennial Temple is what will not be there. The items that you most closely associate with the temple will not exist. In this Millennial Temple, there will be no menorah. There will be no bread of the presence in the in the. King James Bible is called the showbread. That's what we're talking about, the bread of the presence, the showbread. So there's no bread of the presence. There's no altar of incense in the temple. There's no veil. And there's no Ark of the Covenant. So the things that you usually most closely associate with the temple will not be in the Millennial Temple. You see... All of these things that were in the previous temples, think about this now. The menorah, the light, the eyes, the altar of incense, the smell, the notes, the bread of the presence, the mouth. So all of these items were symbolically representing the face of God. But we won't need to symbolically, symbolically represent the face of God because Jesus Christ will be right there. That's why we won't need these items. Did, did you say something? I just said amen. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. So... During the millennial kingdom, there will be no need for symbolic representations of the face of God in the temple because the Messiah himself will be present. The temple will be his throne. The veil was rent at the time of the crucifixion. Christ made it possible to have access to God. In the millennial temple, the holy place and the holy of holies are separated by a doorway. And of course, Christ is the door. He's the the means by which, which entrance is made. The reason that the Ark of the Covenant is missing from the future temple is because the throne of the Lord is present. The Lord Jesus, the righteous one, shall sit on his throne as King Messiah in Ezekiel's temple. The Holy of Holies is, is depicted by Ezekiel 43.7 excuse me, as the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet. When the Messiah rules on earth, Ezekiel makes it exceedingly clear that a resurrected King David will play the major role of king, shepherd, and prince 
appointed by God over Israel. He will serve under the Messiah. Also, an appointed prince. I don't know if you remember this, but when I showed you when I showed you the um, the area around the temple and the city of Jerusalem, okay. There. There. So there's an area for the for the Levites. There's an area an area for the priests, an area for the Levites, and then the city is, is in the southern portion. But you see, on either side, there is a portion for the prince. Who is this prince? Also, an appointed prince will oversee worship and service in the temple. His identity today is unknown. He is not Jesus Christ, as some might believe. You think, well, the Prince of Peace. Maybe it's Jesus. Because he must offer a sin offering for himself. So it can't be, it can't be Jesus, because this, this prince is capable of sinning. Many scholars speculate that David is the prince because he is so designated in other millennial kingdom passages. However, this seems unlikely because the prince appears to be a human being. David will be a sinless, resurrected saint. He will no longer be capable of sinning. The prince's duties are spelled out in Ezekiel 45, 9 through 46, 18. So all we can say about this prince character is that He is a physical, mortal, flesh-and-blood human being who will be living during the time of the millennium, and he will be given special responsibilities. We we really can't say any more than that. We don't know his name. We don't know where he comes from, but he's just called the prince. So stay tuned. We'll find out when Christ returns. Ezekiel 44, 4 through 31 provides information about the dress, demeanor, and duties concerning the priests in charge of the temple. Only Levites from the son of Zadok will be ministering priests because they alone obeyed the Lord when other priests and the children of Israel went astray. I'll I'll give you some scripture references about the the sons of Zadok. If you want to look these up, jot these down, look them up. 1 Samuel uh, 2.35 and, and following. 1 Kings 2.27 and 35. And Jeremiah 33.18. So you can read more about the, the sons of Zadok. And if, if you want to, you can also read more about this uh, mysterious character called the prince in, in these uh, scriptures here from, from Ezekiel. Now, 
I've saved the most uh, controversial aspect of the Millennial Kingdom for last. And that would be the reinstitution of animal sacrifices. What? Animal sacrifices? Doesn't Hebrews, especially Hebrews 9 and 10, tell us that the sacrifices are finished, they're done away, we're never, ever, ever, ever going to see anything like that again? Well, no, that's not exactly what the book of Hebrews says. That is certainly the inference that, that many evangelical Christians draw from the book of Hebrews, but that really isn't what the book of Hebrews says. The author of Hebrews is not saying all sacrifices are forever banned, but that no sacrifice can take the place of Jesus' supreme and complete sacrifice for sin and its consequences. The author of the book of Hebrews understood that there is both a long-term eternal aspect of the sacrifices and that there is also an immediate temporal effect result on, for the, the offer of the sacrifice. We, we see that in, in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So he, he's highlighting these two aspects of the, sacri- of the sacrifices. They pointed towards the, the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but they also did something for the offer, both in the, in the Torah, in the Old Testament, and in the millennial kingdom. Animal sacrifices could never remove spiritual guilt from the offerer. But it is equally erroneous to say that the sacrifices were only teaching symbols given by God to prepare the nation for the Messiah in his infinite atonement. Such instruction and symbolism surely was a major purpose in the sacrificial system, but it was not the exclusive purpose. Scripture tells us that something really did happen. Something really was accomplished when an offerer brought a sacrifice to the temple. He was not the same when he left the temple as when he brought the sacrifice. Let's take a closer look at the other purposes for sacrifices, both in the Old Testament and in the future millennial kingdom of God. See, the the writer of the book of Hebrews is only talking about sacrifices for atonement, sacrifices which reconcile the, the sinner to God. He doesn't say anything about the sacrifices for worship, for praise, and so on, for other purposes. The Millennial Temple's main objective will be to provide a place of worship for Israel and the Gentile nations that will be similar to, yet distinct from, that under the Levitical system. 
Jews and Gentiles alike who have mortal bodies will bring animal sacrifices. I have to emphasize that when we talk about the reinstitution of animal sacrifices, we are not talking about the reinstitution of the Torah. The animal sacrifices that will take place in the millennium are very, very different from those in the Torah. Initially, the Jewish people were reluctant to accept Ezekiel into the canon of scripture. Why? Because the sacrifices that are described in the book of Ezekiel are so different from those in the Torah. I have here lists of differences between the sacrifices in the Torah and those in Ezekiel. They're very different. Um, one, one of the most um, comprehensive books I have found about the Monia Temple is The Messiah's Coming Temple. It's by uh, John Schmidt. And John Schmidt talked to rabbis in Israel about Ezekiel's temple. And one of the rabbis who was involved with preparing priests, training them so that they can perform sacrifices when, when the third temple is built, he said something that really surprised John Schmidt. Uh, in fact, I'll, I'll quote him exactly. He said, John, I do not know of a single man studying for the priesthood today who would offer sacrifices in Ezekiel's temple. Because you couldn't, we already saw about how the altar will be different, how the, the altar that will be in, in the millennial temple is not an acceptable altar under the Torah. Well, he gives an example. Let's say that a priest had to offer a sacrifice. So he brought an animal to the temple. He killed the animal. And, and this is something that's not well understood. When, when you brought a temp, an animal to the temple, the priest didn't kill it. The person who brought the animal had to kill it. And then the priest would take, depending on what kind of sacrifice it was, he would place it on the altar and burn it. But he would al he'd also take blood from the animal. And one of the things that he would do was, with the blood was he would take it into the temple and he would put, it, put drops of blood on the altar of incense. But remember, in the millennial temple, there will be no altar of incense. So that, there's no way that you could perform Torah sacrifices in the millennial temple. It's different. Now, Amillennialists, of course, reject this whole idea of millennial sacrifices. This is a quote from uh, Anthony Hokema. He, he's now deceased, but he was one of the, one of the leading amillennialist scholars. The biggest difficulty, this is Anthony Hokema now, the biggest difficulty with taking these details of a future earthly millennium, literally, is occasioned by the animal sacrifices. So he really has a problem, or had a problem with the animal sacrifices. 
Will there be any need to keep on offering bloody animal sacrifices after Christ has made his final sacrifice to which the Old Testament offerings pointed forward? I, I already showed you how the Old Testament sacrifices did point forward to the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but that isn't all they did. The usual dispensational answer to this objection is that during the millennium, these are to be memorial sacrifices without expiatory value. But what would be the point of going back to animal sacrifices as a memorial of Christ's death after the Lord himself has given us a memorial of his death in the Lord's Supper? Well, it is true that we have a memorial of the Lord's death in the Lord's Supper. But will we in the millennial kingdom? That's the question. I would point you to 1 Corinthians 11.26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the implication is that when he does come, the Lord's Supper will no longer be necessary. The fact is that you couldn't offer sacrifices now if you wanted to. You couldn't. It would be impossible. Because in order to offer sacrifices, you would need a standing temple and a functioning priesthood, neither of which we have had since AD 70. One thing that you will learn if you study the sacrifices, and, and I recommend that you do because the most important value that, that this study has is that it gives you a better understanding of what Christ did on our behalf. But there are different types of sacrifices for different purposes. There is a burnt offering. That's where the entire animal is consumed by fire. But that's not the only type of sacrifice. There's a sin offering. There's a trespass or guilt offering. And with both of these offerings, the, the sacrifice is not entirely consumed by fire. A portion of the sacrifice is consumed by the priest. There's also a grain offering and a drink offering. And there's an interesting parallel between the grain offering and the drink offering with the Lord's Supper, because that also involves grain and drink. As you can tell by the names, these two sacrifices did not involve sacrificing an animal, although these two sacrifices usually accompanied the sacrifice of an animal. And then there's the peace offering. And I, I really do think that there is a memorial aspect of, of the peace offering. The peace offering, this type of of offering was was voluntary. You could bring a peace offering just of your own volition. The other sacrifices were was mandatory, required due to the circumstances. It's the only type of offering in which the owner of the animal offered partakes of the meat and shares it with others. It usually is family, maybe his friends. The peace it represents is not one made with God, but an expression that one was already at peace with God. 
So I think that in the millennium, those physical, mortal, flesh and blood people who are saved, who do have a relationship with Jesus Christ, will commemorate, will memorialize what he has done on their behalf with a peace offering. So I, I do think that the peace offering does have a memorial component. But what about those sacrifices that pertain to sin? Hokema is right in the sense that you can't explain all of the sacrifices as memorials. So many premillennialists, people who do believe in a millennial kingdom after the return of Jesus Christ, they also struggle with this concept. They ask, well, if Jesus' sacrifice is the only efficacious, once-for-all sacrifice to expiate sin, why should animal sacrifices be offered during the millennium? Surely they can't be for sin. Several years ago, I was explaining to a woman that in the millennial kingdom, sacrifices will be reinstituted. And she asked this very question. You know, now that Christ has come, why would we go back to sacrifices? And I said to her, there's something very significant in what you just said. You said, why would we go back to sacrifices? Why would we go back to sacrifices? In the millennial kingdom, all of us who are Christians now will have received our glorified bodies. We wouldn't go back to sacrifices. When people ask this, it is an indication that they really do not understand the nature of sacrifices in the Old Testament. Sacrifices in the Levitical system did not remove sin. If they did, there would have been no need for Christ to come and die for our sins. We would simply continue to offer sacrifices, provided, of course, we had a temple. As Hebrews 10.4 tells us, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The Old Testament sacrifices could not remove sin and were never intended to do so. Uh, Eric has explained many times about the, the Yom Kippur sacrifice, the, the, the Day of Atonement sacrifice, the two goats and what they represent. One represents expiation and one represents propitiation. The propitiation is, is satisfying the wrath of God for his anger toward our sin, and the other is taking away our sin, removing our sin. That's the expiation. The Old Testament sacrifices could not do that. Only Jesus Christ can do that. So why were sacrifices important to the offerers? right then and there and not just uh, in a long term prophetic sense well the reason is because it is serious business to come into the presence of God in a sinful state sin is serious business sin is not just uh, oops I goofed 
I made a mistake. Well, nobody's perfect. No, it's a very serious thing. Sin is a very serious thing, and it's a very serious thing to come into the presence of God. Uh, Brian Zoig w was commenting to me last week that when I, when I showed you that the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory, was in the tabernacle, that was in the first temple, it was not in the second temple, it's not in the tribulation temple, but it will be in the millennial temple. So it's a very serious thing to come into the presence of the living God when he is there in his glorified body, in his full glory. Habakkuk 1.13 says of God, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on iniquity. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 4.24. And it also says a similar thing in the New Testament. Hebrews 12.29. For our God is a consuming fire. And also in Hebrews 10.31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Unregenerate people were in need of protection from the immediate wrath of a holy God that animal sacrifices provided in accordance with their divine design and function. The Old Testament sacrificial system provided a temporary covering for sin so that God could dwell in the midst of Israel, in the tabernacle, and in the temple. Likewise, animal sacrifices offered in the millennial temple will be needed to cover the worshiper's uncleanness. Why? Because God will be dwelling on earth in the midst of sinners living in their natural, unresurrected bodies. There will be people in the millennium who are unconverted, unregenerate, who have not yet received Jesus Christ as their Savior. Without blood sacrifices, these impure worshipers would defile God's holy temple when they came to worship him. The way it is right now, if people don't want to worship God, they just don't, right? If people don't want to go to church and participate in a worship service, what do they do? They just don't come, right? But we saw in Zechariah 14 that in the millennial kingdom, all people, whether they like it or not, will be required to go before God in Jerusalem. And so if you're going to go before God in all of his glory and you're in a sinful state, there have to be provisions made so that you can do that and not die. Such sacrifices will be effectual and expiatory only in terms of the strict provision for ceremonial and temporal forgiveness. Within the theocracy of Israel, what happened was temporal, finite, external, and legal personally and immediately significant. So there's an aspect of the sacrifices that pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on our behalf 
but there is also a temporary aspect of sacrifices on behalf of the, of the offerer of the sacrifice. If that offerer is a sinful person who has not yet repented of his sins, not yet turned to Christ. Sacrifices in the millennium will not be a substitute for God's plan of salvation or a change in the way a person is redeemed. Future sacrifices, like those of the past, will not bring about eternal salvation. Salvation has always been and always will be through faith in Christ and his shed blood on the cross. Nor will these sacrifices diminish Christ's work on the cross. It was Christ's death, not the sacrificial system, that made it possible for sins to be permanently removed, permanently forgiven. A future millennium? Do you honestly think that all of these things, all of these detailed prophecies about the millennial kingdom that, that we have looked at over the past few weeks were essentially a waste of time and effort on the part of the prophets and on the part of God? Just ink wasted on the prophecies that would never come to pass? A future millennium. No. The future millennial kingdom is certain. A time of rejoicing in the perfect reign of our great king. It should be a source of encouragement to us and of motivation to proclaim this truth to the world. So do you have any questions or comments? Yeah, Dana, thank you so much for the great detail that you put into all of this. This is wonderful. And um, the one thing I was just going to mention, even back in the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, one thing that was always required was faith. Uh, In other words, if you offered an offering, whether it be a sin offering, a burnt offering, if it wasn't offered in faith, it was unacceptable to God. And good evidence of that can be seen in Isaiah 1, where God rebukes the people of Israel for giving vain sacrifices. In fact, he says to them here, this is uh, Isaiah 113, he says, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. Up above, he says that he couldn't bear their, their feasts. Um, he says, what are your multitude of sacrifices to me, says the Lord. So if, in fact, the act done of sacrificing the animal could provide atonement, then God couldn't have said that because God would have been taking away, taking away the only means of atonement that they had. But the issue is, in the Old Testament, when the person offered a sacrifice, they had to believe in Yahweh. So you and I do the Lord's Supper now. So that means if we have the Lord's Supper on any given Sunday, does that mean we're right with the Lord? Well, no, we can do that in a vain way. I do it because I have faith in Christ. So just as I can do the Lord's Supper in a vain way where I don't have faith in Christ... The Old Testament worshiper could offer an offering, whether it be a bull, a goat, a ram, a lamb, a pigeon, a grain offering, whatever it may be, they can do it in a vain way. And God said he would not accept that. And I think that that shows another issue, what Dean is raising. I think these temples are real, but just as in the Old Testament, they were never efficacious outside of faith. In the same way, they won't be, out, they won't be efficacious outside of faith in the Millennial Temple as well. And I think that just for an unbeliever, I think that just the fact that they are required to go to this temple and to appear before God, that 
will put, as we say, the fear of God in them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I don't see Paul here today, but I, I wanted to give a, a more complete answer to his question. He was wondering, well, when we, when we see all of these wonderful conditions during the millennium, he's wondering, well, how is this different from universal salvation? Well, there are three evil influences that result in sin. There's the world, the flesh, and the devil. During the millennial kingdom, the devil, Satan, will be bound, so we won't have that evil influence. And the world, well, the world right now is constantly bombarding us with negative, ungodly messages, but in the, in the millennial kingdom, the world around us will be constantly bombarding us with godly, right, correct messages. So we won't have that influence. But there's still one problem that people will have. <laughs> Remember the, the old uh, cartoon about we've met the enemy and he is us? I mean, <laughs> so, so it, will be still, it will still be possible for people to reject God. And some will. We, we can see that, especially at the end of the millennium, when, when Satan is once again released and he uses the same old deceptions that he's been using for centuries. Uh, you, know, you, you don't need God telling you what to do all the time. Join me and I'll, I'll liberate you. I'll, I'll show you freedom. So in, in that sense, that there, there's a, a vast difference between conditions in the, in the millennium and, and universal salvation. And of course, as Bob pointed out, uh, all of the people who died before the millennium, they not, they're not all saved. So, uh, did you have, have a question, Brian? Yeah, <clears throat> sorry. I wanted to uh, kind of share an observation that I've only had about five minutes to research. But last lesson you showed us the diagram of the Shekinah glory and pun intended a light came on for me when you showed me that okay because it's 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 about the seriousness of sin but it's mm -hmm. also about the seriousness of God's glory mm -hmm. and when we look at John 2017 after the resurrection Jesus said to Mary she turned to him and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them, and on and on. So here's a command. Don't touch me. Okay? Up until then, Jesus was one of us. He was yeah. eating with sinners. There was, there was none of that, none of that, death and gloom it was you know baby jesus in a manger it was all you know very safe yeah. right yeah. okay then you know we also see this issue of the glory in john seven thirty nine. um uh, spirit for whom those who believed in him were to later receive. But up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. And in the temple, it's going to be the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the glory. It's all going to be there. And it's a big deal. Um, that, that's an important distinction that I was going to mention. The distinction between Christ in the incarnation and Christ in his glory when he's sitting in the temple. 
because when he was here on earth among mankind, I mean, people touched him, they handled him. I mean, there was a woman who washed his feet. There was a, a woman who touched the hem of his garment. I mean, people handled him, they touched him. And that was acceptable then. But you would uh, be hard pressed to do that in, in, when Christ is here on earth ruling in his glorified state. Um, is there, are there any comments not only about what I've covered today, but the things I've covered in, in the past few weeks talking about this millennial kingdom? Bob? Uh, I would uh, be careful about that translation. Uh, when he said, don't touch me, I would. Yeah, that, that could no. be translated, don't cling to me, yeah. as if she didn't want him to go on up to heaven. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, because we got to be, we don't want to say Jesus didn't really have a body after he was raised. Right. Okay, because he ate fish mm-hmm. with the disciples after the resurrection. And I would just make one analogy to calm our hearts, if, if nothing else, it helps me. Um, at, at the end of Malachi, there was a promise that. Uh, Elijah would be sent before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Okay? Now, Jesus comes into human history in the incarnation, and it turns out that Elijah was actually John the Baptist, according to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Jesus is God, and Jesus cannot lie. Elijah does show up at the Mount of Transfiguration, but disappears. But Jesus is the one to listen to. So I don't claim to understand uh, Dana has taken us through material. I haven't taught it myself. I don't claim I understand it. But we can't get it wrong if Jesus is on the scene of history. So I'm not worried that I'm going to somehow sin during the millennium if I don't understand all this right now. Because the real issue is whether Jesus is literally going to establish a millennial reign and reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And when the king is present, then we even know more then than we do now. In other words, what we know now is limited to Scripture alone. But when Christ is on earth, there'll be more that we can learn. And so... If we don't understand something correctly now or we don't say it just right, it doesn't mean that we're going to somehow mess up the millennium. Mm-hmm. Okay? Does that make sense? Yeah. Is it okay to say that? Because I don't know that anybody would have known that John the Baptist was Elijah if it wasn't the fact that Jesus told us that. I wouldn't have got it. I would have assumed the literal John the Baptist came back. But I would also say I don't want to belittle the literalness of it either because if you look at everything that happened when Jesus was here during the the first advent there are dozens and dozens of dozens of literal fulfillments John the Baptist would be maybe the one exception I don't know if there were some others but uh, I think we may be shocked at how literal it is in some ways Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't be shocked if some things are different either but once Jesus is here we're going to be safe from air in our glorified body. Yes. Um, I appreciate what Bob said about giving us 
reassurance that if we we get it wrong, we're going to be okay because of Jesus. Um, Dane, I wanted to mention that I appreciate um, your curiosity uh, that you wanted to understand the Levitical sacrifices and how Ezekiel, those chapters in Ezekiel fit in with the rest of the Bible. For serious Bible students, um, it could it has been very confusing, um, and it took a ton of research for you to get your hands around what you presented to us, and it's helped to satisfy um, a lot of questions that I've had about Levitical sacrifices and yeah. so and how that's reconciled with Hebrews, too. So um, this has been very helpful, and wow, praise God for Jesus. Um, and... Um, how beautiful to see what he's done for us and what he'll continue to do for us. I think yeah, it's just beautiful. I, I think that that the discovery that the millennial sacrifices are different from the Torah sacrifices is very important. Because as soon as you talk about animal sacrifices, people think, oh, you're talking about the Torah. You're talking about reinstating the Old Testament sacrifices. No, that's not what the millennial temple, the millennial sacrifices are. Um, another, another. You remember when I talked earlier about how amillennialists and postmillennialists deal, try to deal with these, all of these passages about about um, the millennial kingdom. They, they try to ignore it, or reinterpret it or they try to uh, deny, de- deny it and by that I mean deny not deny the prophecies but deny that they will ever be fulfilled and I think that that is that is something that, that we should consider whenever you're looking at a passage of scripture and you find yourself saying well, I just can't accept that <laughs> You have, you have to recognize that maybe, just maybe, there's a flaw in your theology. <laughs> maybe, maybe there's just not something that you're understanding correctly. Because if it's in the Bible, it's in the inspired word of God, in the canon of scripture, it's there for a reason, and we need to try to understand it. Yeah, I think uh, just this last week I was reading, and I think this goes to your point that you just made. Uh, It's in Mark 4, um, verses uh, 23 through 25. And then there's a parallel passage in Luke 8, um, about verse 16 through 18. And I'll just paraphrase it a little bit. Jesus, it was just after the parable of the soils. And then Jesus was speaking to his followers, which is important for us to understand. And this is the one where he says, uh, and I'll quote it from Luke. Take care how you listen. For whoever has to him, more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has shall be taken away from him. Now, I wrestled with that a little bit. I'd never thought that much about it. But, you know, he's speaking to his followers, and that's us. And we need to listen carefully. And that's what you've done, Dana. And that's what we're attempting to do here. And, and Jesus is saying that we'll be blessed, that, that our, our understanding will be multiplied. I hope I'm reading this right. You know, you guys can comment on it. But 
if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we are told by him to listen carefully to what he says, and that means carefully to Scripture, to be careful and diligent students of Scripture. And there's a warning there, too, which I would, I would probably state that warning to some of the different supposed Christian theologians and others. I've got certain names in mind, but I won't say them. And that is that um, if you do not listen carefully, whoever does not have, in other words, whoever is a false prophet or who is not, who is a false believer, who poses as a Christian and, and, and gets up on a, uh, in a, in a uh, gets up in a church or has a mega church or whatever it might be with false doctrine, that whatever they think they have will be taken away from them. Well, so, just to, to, yeah. to, to follow up on what you were saying about listening carefully, that is why expository preaching and teaching is so valuable. Because those of us who are entrusted to teach the Word of God, it prevents us from just concentrating on those passages that we like those that are popular, those that are easily understood. We have to preach the whole counsel of God. We have to preach and teach the whole counsel of God. Even those passages that may be a little more difficult to understand, even those passages that may make some people feel uncomfortable, we have to preach the entire, the whole counsel of God. Um, um, it, it occurs to me, well, this passage here, let me read one. Uh, it says, Beloved, now we are children. This is First uh, John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know him that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him at, just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. And, and it occurs to me, you know, now we only know in part, then we'll know in full you know, Paul says, um, he, he who began, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion. And, um, and, it's, and there's more than that. I mean, we, can, we only know, like, little parts of God's goodness. Like David, he, when filled with the Spirit, I mean, he, he took down a giant when he was just a young, you know, boy with, with little stones. Like, when we're filled with God's, like, it's so good. The more we understand God, like, it makes us brave. It makes us, you know, there's just... Well, th- yes, th- this just fits in right with the eye has not seen nor ear heard. I mean, we can read in the scriptures about what the millennial kingdom will be like, but it's still difficult to wrap our heads around it and to really imagine what it will be like when Jesus is ruling and reigning upon the earth. Scott? Um, so I just wanted to clarify a little more on... Who is bringing the sacrifices in the millennium? The the those that uh, are in their glorified bodies are not. I right, know. correct. And uh, so the, the the saints that are still in their mortal bodies will they'll only bring the peace offerings. Is yeah, that they'll have, bring peace offerings as memorials for what Christ has done on their and behalf. It, and is that required for them, or is that well, as uh, I mentioned, voluntary the, the, there? As I mentioned, the peace offering is voluntary, but I mean, it's like, I mean, for you people here, 
do we have to force you to praise God? I mean, yeah, right, right, <laughs> it's right, voluntary, right, right, but right, right, you will right, gladly do it, right? right. I mean. So then the, those that are not regenerate are the only ones bringing the, the other kind of sacrifices. But, yeah, but, but, as, but as Eric was pointing out, it's going to be pretty hard to go before God and in his saved. temple at Jerusalem and say, well, I don't really want to be here. <laughs> okay. Father in heaven, we, we thank you that you have given us so much detail about this glorious kingdom that will come, that will be established upon the return of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for it. We praise you for it. We look forward to it. It's a great encouragement and incentive to us to be about your business, to be about proclaiming the glorious plan of salvation that you have for mankind, and to make the offer to people to be a part of that great plan. Regardless of whether they accept it or don't, we are the messenger. We are the ones who you have given us the great privilege of participating evangelism. You don't need us, but you've graciously given us a part in the work that you are doing upon this earth. For that we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah.